Today I'm sharing a bonus episode with you. My friend Anthony McNeil is the creator of the Off Duty Podcast. It's a podcast I've been listening to and thought I would share with you all. Anthony is a retired police officer that served 20 years as well as a husband and father. The premise of the show is to allow the public the opportunity to see that men and women that proudly put on that uniform every day are human. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode from Anthony. This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. I really lost the desire to live. I was just battling so many demons up to this point and stuff that went on back into my early childhood and stuff like that. And I'd be going on SWAT jobs and I'd be sitting in the Bearcat on the way to Target and I'd be saying to myself, I'd be praying, God, let me take one in the head. I didn't want to live. I didn't want to live, but I also didn't want to do it myself because I didn't want my my kids to think of me as being a coward for taking my own life. Welcome to the Off Duty Podcast, the podcast where we interview the men and women of law enforcement and help you to learn about the person behind the badge. If this is your first time tuning in, thank you. My name is Anthony McNeil, retired police officer and your host. Let's get started. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode number 65 of the Off-Duty Podcast. Once again, it's me, your boy, Anthony McNeil, back with a very special guest joining me here on the podcast. This gentleman reached out to me about coming on as a guest, and when I started researching his story, I was definitely happy to have him join me here to share his story. He's from the state of New Jersey. He has 14 years in the law enforcement profession. He served in the military. He's a certified master resilience trainer. Please help me welcome Mr. Brad Wabi. Brad, how you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Anthony. Thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Indeed. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and and share your story with everybody. But before we get to your story, can you do me a favor? I lead each episode off with the same question. Why law enforcement? (sighs) To help others. Yeah. It's that selfless service that that I've always had growing up. My father is a funeral director and he's helping out families in their greatest time of need. And that was instilled in me through my earliest memories. You know, I've always seen my dad taking in families into the arrangement office. Mm-hmm. They could be crying and suffering the loss of a loved one. And after about two hours, my dad will have them walking out of that office. They'll be laughing and joking around and stuff like that. And uh, it's just helping others. I saw it at my dad. And of course, I want to take over the business. And my father, my father goes to me, he's like, Brad, do not take over this business. Do not go into a job where you're on call 24-7, 365. So what a great choice I got into being in law enforcement and being a detective. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I'm on call 24-7, 365. So. Yeah. Did you start out in New Jersey? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Any other family members in the profession? No. The only family members that I know of are distant relatives over in England. There were uh, cops over in England. There were Bobbies. Okay. And what was that conversation like with your pops when you told him you decided to go into law enforcement? He was very supportive, you know, because he knew that I always wanted to to serve. Coming out of high school, I had numerous scholarship offers to go play Division One football. And I chose the United States Military Academy because of 
not only the opportunity to play Division One football, but for what the institution stood for, duty, honor, country, mm-hmm. and to have the ability to go serve this country that I love so much. That's really why I made the, the, the decision to go there. Yeah. Even as a young kid, I looked up at the cops and I wanted to be like them. Now, for those that are listening to this on the audio, Brad mentioned that he played Division One football. What are you, 6'5"? Six, 6'5", five? Six, five, about 3'10". Okay. So, yeah. and, and I want you guys to keep that in mind as we go through Brad's story here, because his story and his physical makeup, you would not think that they go together. But this gentleman has quite the story, and I'm going to jump into it here with him. Uh, before I do that, can you explain to me, what's a resilience trainer? So... Back in 2019, the state of New Jersey, under the direction of the Attorney General at the time, Gabriel Graywall, in response to the rash of police suicides, both in the state of New Jersey and across the river in New York City, came up with a program, the first of its kind in the country, to help officers. Okay. To help officers reach out and raise their hand and get the help they needed without fear of any retaliation, without fear of any punishment. I fear losing their job. Yeah. And what we do as a master resiliency trainer, I'm like one of, I want to say, a hundred and something in the state. And my responsibility is to teach the resiliency officers, the RPOs, resiliency police officers in each jurisdiction. So in my county, I want to say we have like almost 60 plus jurisdictions. Wow. My, my county and each of them have at least two RPOs. and my job is to go teach them the resiliency officer program. Now, wow, I taught the RPOs back in April for six weeks. Now I have been transferred up to the police academy, where is my full-time job, where I now teach uh, ABLE, ICAT, and resiliency to approximately 3,500 police officers. Mm. So every single active duty police officer in my county. Awesome, man. Now you were part of this program from the start? From the beginning, yeah. Okay. Did you have any input as far as how it was laid out in the training process or? I didn't have any input into it, but I very quickly bought into it because I wish I had this training and this knowledge and these resources Mm -hmm. 34 months ago. Yeah. When I was going through my, when I was going through my stuff. The beauty of this program is that it gives me the opportunity. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. Okay. It gives me the opportunity to, 12 step and go out and help others. Mm-hmm. And I want to say well over two dozen police officers I've helped get help, That's you know, awesome. whether it be going, you know, go, going to rehab or going to other, you know, places. But that's since the start of it. And that was when I got trained, that was the beginning of March of 2020 when COVID hit. Yeah, man. That's awesome, man. Now you mentioned that you were a uh, recovering alcoholic. Now did your yes. drinking start once you got on the job or was it prior? No. My drink started prior. I, I had my first drink when I was approximately 15 years old. Okay. I remember it was a piss warm Miller like at a party. And uh, <laughs> all growing up and even now, like I always had this feeling to belong to something, to belong to a group or whatever. You know, growing up, I was bullied by looking at me being the big guy. You think I'd be the guy who's bullying other kids, but that wasn't the case. I'm a very emotional individual, especially as a young kid. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I still do. But especially as a young kid, I got very emotional. And whenever kids picked on me, I cried. And you know how young kids are. One-on-one, they're fine. They won't say anything to you. Yeah. But you get them in a group, 
They're like hyenas, you know, <laughs> exactly. and they'll just pounce on you, yeah. right? And that's what happened. I got bullied by, by a lot of kids. So I started to develop this sense of uh, feeling that I wasn't good enough, that I was a failure, that I was a piece of shit, that I was, you name it, that's what I thought. You know, anything negative, that's what I thought about myself. Okay. And um, growing up, I was never like the cool kid. You know, I was a, an athlete and stuff like that. I never hung out with the cool kids. But like once in a while, I'd see my parties and stuff like that. And this one party when I was 15 years old, I grabbed a can of beer and popped it open and drank it. And it felt like I now belonged. And it became my security blanket almost. And I self-medicated mm-hmm. through it. I So the drinks, not to cut you off, but the drinking was, you started drinking to cover up for the bullying, how you felt from the bullying. For the bullying and how I felt about myself, because I had a very low self-esteem about myself. And the drinking made that go away. Okay. I felt normal. and. As my life progressed, so did my drinking. When I graduated high school, I went to the United States Military Academy Prep School down at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, you know, about an hour away from where I live. My drinking went with me. You know, down there, we were allowed to have our POVs or personal vehicles, mm-hmm. and I had my I had booze in there. Anytime I felt stress, anytime I felt like I needed to uh, really ground myself, I would go out to the car to take a swig. Yeah. And that also followed me when I went up to West Point. Back then, we had the tower computers. Let me back up. The longest period I had from the time I was 15 to the time I went to West Point, the longest period I was sober was for the two months I had it for Beast Barracks. Okay. Cadet basic training. Yeah. That was the longest time I was sober. And once the academic year started back up, we got issued like our computers. And there were big old tower computers from like the early 2000s. And up there, you weren't allowed to have any contraband, alcohol, drugs, obviously. So you'd have to hide it, right? Mm-hmm. And what I did was I would take the, I'd take my Leatherman, take this, the case off my tower computer, and it was a big enough void in there where I could hide bottles of booze. Wow. So that's where I hid it. And I never, you know, they never found it because, I mean, we'd had health and welfare inspections at least once a month. And they'd run the dogs through and they never, they never caught with it, but I re- was relying upon it heavily. And then during a football season, my family that lived closest to the academy, they would always come on up and they would have an unofficial football team tailgate. You know what I mean? Like all the guys, all the players would come on down and all it was, was my, my parents and my buddy's parents and stuff like that who were on the football team that lived close. Yeah. We used to be bringing cases of beer. Yeah. I remember my one buddy who lived out in Pittsburgh, his father would bring cases of Iron City Light and just keep refilling the cooler. You yeah. know? Man, that's that. That had to have been hard during that time because, I mean, everybody that's attended college, especially playing sports, that's what you do is drink, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's almost yeah. part of the norm, yeah. you know? Exactly. Yeah, man. But up there, I would always look at my friends who went to a normal institution and I'd say, how the hell did you do it? How are you able to go drink all night long and yeah. then wake up the next morning and take a test? And then they asked me, how the hell did you do it? I'm like, it's easy because if you didn't do it, you got in trouble. And everything was all regimented, planned out for you. All you had to do was just follow the rules. Yeah. Right. And follow your schedule. But I needed that because if I would have gone to a regular college, I would have failed out. I would have quit the football team and I would definitely would have been a, an alcoholic sooner rather than uh, later on in my life. Man, that's crazy. How long have you been sober now? 34 months. Okay. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, man. I mean, alcohol as a society, we probably take it for granted. Because it's just so ingrained in everything that we do nowadays, especially sports and things like that. Yeah, sports and especially in our culture and law enforcement. Yeah. 
everything we do, a promotion party, a holiday party, a retirement party, narcotics, we would take down a wire and we go out and we all celebrate. Mm-hmm. And you have a big search warrant or whatever. You drank. Yeah. You found the reason to drink. I mean, shit, we're, you go out and drink because they ended in a letter Y. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you found the reason. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it was bonding. It's how our brothers and sisters on the job, how we got the camaraderie. And you were looked down if you didn't, looked down upon if you didn't drink. Yeah. People didn't trust you. And so it's almost like you're forced to. And that, and that shouldn't be the case. Mm-hmm. You know, it's your own personal decision if you don't want to drink. It doesn't mean you're a bad cop. That actually means you're freaking smart. <laughs> Looking back on it, because I wish, I wish I had every single dollar back that I spent in, on the summers in the Jersey Shore when I was out drinking actively, because I'd have like 10 shore houses now down there. <laughs> you know, because I was, oh, all that money I would have saved. But, you know, it's um, those learning experiences. Everything happens for a reason. For sure. You know, for sure. I'm a firm believer in that. It's all part of God's plan. Yep. That, that's it. The path has already been laid. We just mm-hmm. have to follow that path. And sometimes that path is, can be bumpy, but those bumps are just testimonies for other people that's coming behind us. Yeah, man, I, I fully believe that. I want to go ahead and, and, and jump into my first segment. This is what I call Dig yep. Deeper. And this mm-hmm. is where I get nosy and I go poking through the guest social media and I pull out certain posts and I ask questions around those posts. And I have two posts of yours in particular that I want to ask you about, Brad. The first one, this was a picture of a gentleman holding up a sign that says, suck it up does not mean you can't ask for help. And the caption on that post read, suck up your pride and ask for help. Pride and ego are the number one killers of first responders and veterans because it prevents them from raising their hand and asking for help. Check them at the door and ask for help. You recall that post? Yes, I do. All right. My first question around that post, what was the moment you realized that you needed help? The first moment that I realized I needed help was probably back in January of 2018 when I had my first alcohol-related incident dealing with work. Okay. You know, I had other couple brushes where I said to myself, you always say that prayer, oh God, get me out of this situation, I'll never drink again. And 48 hours later, you got a bottle, you, you got a bottle to your mouth. In there. Right? So, yeah. So really it was that because that's when I, I got, I got in trouble and that's the first time I drink and really affected my work, okay. my employment. That was the first time I got my gun and badge taken from me. So I got jammed up for an incident that happened at a bar where a individual that I had arrested four months prior had spotted me in a bar because I am not easy to forget. Mm-hmm. He approached me and it is what it is. And he made a call to my department. I got called to the carpet and it was the first time I ever got called to the carpet in my life, yeah. whether it be when I was at West Point would be when I was in law enforcement, anything. And it's that fear of the unknown that your asshole's puckering. You're like, oh shit, I'm standing before the man. I'm standing before the chief. And he ripped my ass, ripped my ass because he really didn't know the totality of everything. Mm-hmm. Right? How much time did you have on a job at that point? Oh, about 10 years. Okay. A little over 10 years. And he just thought I was acting stupid. He thought I was just acting like a knucklehead. Mm-hmm. Right. So he wanted to set me straight. And it wasn't until I made a comment to my sergeant when I said, I think this is a sign I need to stop drinking. I'm drinking a little too much at home. Mm-hmm. She takes that information, tells my lieutenant, my lieutenant tells my captain, my captain tells my chief. The next day I get brought in. 
And when I get brought in to the office, there is my SWAT commander. There's my PBA president, who's my best friend. There's my delegate, who's also a close friend of mine, and my captain and my lieutenant. And they're all sitting around a table. And I come on in, tears start coming down my face. I'm just like, oh, shit. Yeah. Because you don't know what's going to happen. And they tell me they're going to take my gun and bash for me. And then we put on administrative leave. And that I got to go for fitness for duty. And for anyone out there who's ever gotten their gun and badge taken from them, it feels like you got your nuts cut off. Because for some reason, that piece of cheap tin, and that you know, piece of polymer and metal is our identity. Identity, correct. Yeah. And it's not. Right. That's not who we are. That's our job. Mm-hmm. It's just like, a, it's, a, it's a tool of our job. Just like a hammer is a tool for a carpenter, mm-hmm. right? right. That, that, that hammer does not define who that carpenter is. So it was very hard for me then. They had to go back, take all my guns from my house, and I had to go for fitness or duty. And I got basically put out of work for 90 days, but I was literally going out of my mindset at home. So they, they, sent me, they sent me back to work, and I was working an administrative spot. Okay. And I was working an administrative spot, and approximately two months later, I then go back from a fitness for duty, get cleared, and I get my gun and badge back. And then I go out to dinner with my wife to celebrate. Because at this point, we had two kids, you know, a young, I want to say he was three years old. And then I had a brand new, like, one-year-old. And life was hectic. I mean, my ex, she, she's, she's a saint. She put up on my shit, you know, for as long as she could. You know, and I wasn't present during this time, mentally or physically. Yeah. And that's one of my biggest regrets was not being there for them, for my family. And so we go out to, we go out to dinner and we're at dinner. My wife goes, Brad, why don't you have a glass of wine with dinner? I know it's something you want. I know you want it. You've been doing so well. He deserves a glass. I'm like, well, there's a green light. Let's go. Now I haven't drank in 90 days. I was white knuckling it. I wasn't in a program, wasn't doing anything. So I ordered a glass of wine. Wine comes, I take one sip. One fucking sip. And who do you think walks in? My chief. <laughs> if if that's not a sign from God right there, <laughs> telling me to stop fucking drinking, I don't know what is. I mean, I took a that's like a neon one of those neon signs in the Vegas strip just flashing, stop drinking. And I didn't listen. That was God telling me to stop drinking, and I didn't listen. I gave that glass to her. She drank it. She put it on, she put it on the bus boys tray as he was walking by. And that one sip, eight months later, almost killed me because I went on a downward spiral from that moment on. In eight months, I was drinking a handle of Tito's on a Saturday and a handle of Tito's on a Sunday. I was drinking three pints of Jameson a day after work. And I did not feel, I did not feel comfortable walking into my own house. I would have rather have been in an active shooter situation. Because it's something I knew how to, how to, how to mitigate. I knew how to do it. I was trained on how to do that stuff. I was never trained on how to be a, a good father or a good husband. And I was, I didn't want to deal with that stress because I was always living at a high level. I was always redlining it. You know, I was mm-hmm. always riding that adrenaline. And I didn't know how to bring it down and drive at 55 miles an hour. I became paranoid. I thought everyone in my department hated me. I thought, from my chief on down, I thought everyone on my SWAT team hated me. From my commander on down, I would see the chief or any other one of my supervisors walking down the hallway, 
and I would quick duck into a room. That's how afraid I was of seeing them for fear of that they were out to get me or they knew what was really going on up in my head. This was in December of 2018. I really, I really lost the desire to live. I was just battling so many demons up to this point and stuff that went on back into my early childhood and stuff like that. And I'd be going on SWAT jobs and I'd be sitting in the Bearcat on the way to Target and I'd be saying to myself, I'd be praying, God, let me take one in the head. I didn't want to live. I didn't want to live, but I also didn't want to do it myself because I didn't want my my kids to think of me as being a coward Yeah, for taking my own life. I didn't want them to think of me as being selfish or anything like that. I, I felt that my family would be better off without me. My kids would be better off without me and my my wife could remarry some guy who could be a better husband, be a better father to my kids than mm-hmm. I was. Because I felt I, I felt like I was the worst father in the world because I wasn't paying atten- any attention to him. Anytime I was home, I was drunk. I was never never there mentally or physically for them. If you needed to find me back then, you could find me one of three places, work, gym, or the bar. That's it. And um, my work had become my identity. That's all I cared about. I was working six days a week. And it was, it was bad. And, uh, my last, my sobriety day is December 25th, 2018. That's when I had my last drink. The 26th, I was working a SWAT truck that day. So I didn't drink. The 27th was my squad on the SWAT team. It was our Christmas party that day. That's all I was looking forward to, just going out and getting hammered with the guys. And I was putting together my kids' pool patrol bicycle. Then we got it for Christmas. And he was so happy. It was a beautiful sunny day out. He was so happy riding around the cul-de-sac by our house. And she came home from work. We took our two boys upstairs and put them down for their nap. She comes downstairs and tells me that she wants a divorce. You know, as cops, when we hear news like that, we automatically think worst case scenario. Because that's all we see in our daily lives is worst case scenario. We see the worst that, that society has to offer. Right. Whenever we get called, it's not like someone's calling us up to go to a birthday party or go to a barbecue or a celebration or anything. They're calling us up because their life has become chaotic and the shit has a defend their in their life. When they call us to help go fix it. Now, how can I go fix someone else's life when I can't even control the chaos that's in my life? I thought to myself, I'm like, all right, she's she's gonna divorce me. I'm gonna lose my kids, never gonna see him again. She's gonna take all my money. She's going to take my pension. She's going to take the house. I'm going to have nothing. So what the fuck am I living for? I have nothing to live for. I got very emotional. I jumped in my truck and I drove. And I was driving up this highway by where I live, going up to my hometown. And I sent, my, I sent her a text. I sent her a text saying, I'm sorry. I love you. You're not going to have to deal with me anymore. And I shut both my phones off my personal and my work phone. And I drove to the top of this mountain and I sat there. In the back of my truck, I had my SWAT rifle. I had another pistol back there. And I had my duty weapon in my center console. I sat there, I took my duty weapon out, put it in my lap. And I got tears rolling down my face and I'm thinking of every possible reason not to kill myself. I couldn't find any. Mm-hmm. I just did not want to live anymore. I had no desire whatsoever. Eventually, I take my pistol and put it in my mouth and I'm picking up slack on the trigger and tears rolling down my face. And for some reason, and I do not know why 
my best friend who was killed in Afghanistan in 2013 pops into my head and says, put down the gun, pick up the phone. And I did. Mm -hmm. I picked the phone, turned it on, my phone, all the notifications start going off and I call her up and she's hysterical crying on the phone. And she, I get her on the phone and she's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. Where are you? I'm listen. I'm fine. She goes, I called the cops. The cops are here. First words out of my mouth were you just ruined my fucking career. Cause that's all I cared about. All I cared about was a job. I didn't care about my life. I didn't care about anything else. All I cared about was a job, but she saved my life that day. Cause if she did not make that phone call, I would not be here doing this podcast with you. I would never have found my purpose in life. I would have never have helped out all, all those other cops and veterans that I've helped out and made all these great connections that I've made and become the best father that I could be mm -hmm. given my situation. I'm a different person now because of that. Granted, it took a while. Uh, still a work in progress. Trust me. It's, not, it's, <laughs> it's progress, not perfection. And there were some bumps along the road. For instance, I had to go get surgery because I got run over by a car in Camden back in November of 2018. And once I returned from rehab, and I'll get into my rehab story in a little bit, but once I returned from rehab, I had to go get, get surgery. And that was on March 11th of 2019. Mm -hmm. My wife, she told me, she goes, when you're done with surgery, don't come home. I don't want you here. Go live with your parents. That was the last time I ever lived with my family. A week later, our house was on the market. And in July of, of 19, we sold our house and I went to go live in a one bedroom apartment above a hoarder's house. That's all I could afford. Mm -hmm. So I'm still trying to support my family. That's where I lived. That was my depression dungeon. And I just fell into a deep state of depression because when I went to rehab, the third step in the 12 step program of AA says to give your will and thinking up to the care of your higher power, to care of God as you understand him. I gave up my drinking up to him. I haven't had a drink, but I did not give up complete control. I did not completely surrender to him. And that's what bit me in the ass. So back in uh, December of 2018, let me go back here. After that incident, I had to go turn myself in to the local PD. And it happened to be the hometown police department where I grew up. So talk about being awkward. I had to go in and interact with cops that have known me ever since I've been born, guys that I went to high school with. And it was embarrassing. Looking back on it, was very, very embarrassing. And I had to go then voluntarily admit myself to the county psych hospital, which was a very, very humbling experience because just to be a regular person in that, in that institution sucks, but to be a law enforcement officer in that institution really sucks. Mm -hmm. to treat you like a prisoner. So when I get there, they're the people who I thought hated me. They were standing there waiting for me to, to arrive. It was my SWAT commander, my best friend, my PBA delegate, another close friend of mine, and my PBA vice president, who's another very close friend of mine. Those four guys were there with me. And they did not leave my side in the emergency room until I went on up to the unit. They stayed there all night with me. And they did everything they possibly could to help me out and to help my family out there in this time. So originally they were going to send me down to uh, the Florida house, right, for rehab because the state PBA has a contract with them. And 
my chief had the wherewithal to say, pump the brakes on it. Let's find the place that will fit Brad. Let's find a place where Brad will fit in. He needs to be around people of his own. People are just like him. So a call was made to a company that trains us on our SWAT team. And the company's name is Tomahawk. And they're a bunch of retired um, Naval Special Warfare guys based out of Nashville. And I had developed a very close relationship with one of the uh, guys who founded it. Right, his name is Wally. The relationship him and I has, has, has become closer because of what he's done for me. My chief actually called him up and said, hey, listen, Brad, going through some shit. Brad needs some help. Wally in turn picked up the phone and calls Tom Spooner. Tom Spooner's a retired Delta operator who founded this place in Bandera, Texas called Warrior's Heart. And Warrior's Heart's the only uh, rehab facility in the nation that is specifically designed for members of the warrior class, meaning active duty military, veterans, and first responders. It is a 42-day program, about an hour outside of San Antonio. After spending about four days at the psych hospital, I boarded a plane in the early morning hours of January 1st, 2019. And myself and another uh, fellow operator on the SWAT team, who's a good friend of mine, we flew down to San Antonio. And I was handed off to the driver from Warrior's Heart, and he drove me about an hour to the facility. When I got there, remember I was talking about earlier how about I always had that sense of needing to belong to something, right? Well, this is the first time I feel like I actually belonged because I was around old people just like me, a bunch of addicts and a bunch of drunks, people who can understand, people who can relate to me. And I made some very, very good relationships there, some of which I you know, keep in contact with probably weekly. Did the program there. It, it was not easy. It, it was work. Don't get me wrong. When you go on, when you go to rehab, it's not like you're going to Club Med. You're, you ain't going on a sandals vacation. You're going to, um, you're going there to work. I looked at it a little more like a business trip. So I went there and 42 days later, I came home and I had to go for my psyche valve. And they told me that I had to do 90 meetings in 90 days. And I had to get a sponsor, follow the program of AA and do all this stuff, which I did. But the problem was, is that I wasn't, transparent. I wasn't honest. There were things I was still holding back from not only my therapists, but also my sponsor for fear of judgment. And I held those things back. And it wasn't until December of 2019 when I got called into my chief's office again, because there was some concern about my, my well-being because I had become very, very depressed. And they called me in. My chief sits me down and asks me, Hey, Brad, how you doing? I'm doing good, chief. I'm doing good. Don't fucking lie to me. How are you feeling? And I just broke down and cried. I said, I'm not doing well. That's when he got my gun and badge pulled for me for the third time in two years. Earlier in that day, I got to an AA meeting. I got into my home group and I, and I got up and I spoke. And I spoke about how I didn't want to live this life anymore, how I wanted to be honest, how I wanted to be transparent, how I just wanted to be happy, joyous, and free. And uh, a gentleman had stopped me before I left the meeting and he says to me, you know what being a prisoner is about. You deal with prisoners on a daily basis. You tell them when to eat, when to sleep, when to go to the bathroom, when to work out, when to shower, do everything, right? You need to become a prisoner to God. God needs to tell you when to do everything. And for the first time in my life, it clicked. And he goes, you need to get in touch with your buddy, Tyler. And I'm like, Tyler, like, what are you talking about? And how do you know? I know someone named Tyler. I don't even know you, dude. This is the first time I've ever seen this guy. And I knew exactly who he was talking about because I have a, I have a kid that I work with and Tyler, who's very spiritual, very religious. And so I called him up after I left the meeting 
He's like, Brad, oh my God, you know, I'm so happy you called me. I was going to reach out to you later on today. I was praying for you yesterday at church. God came to me and put you in my heart and for me to pray for you. And God said that if you were to give your life up to him, he would give you a life beyond your wildest dreams and you'd be helping out cops and veterans. And I'm like, all right, buddy, keep drinking the Kool-Aid. I was like, all right, I brushed it off. And then 30 minutes later, he called my chief's office. And then the first phone call I make when I leave my chief's office is to my buddy, Tyler. And I call him and I'd give him a whole rundown of what happened. He's like, well, you ready? I'm like, ready for what? Ready to surrender? I'm like, dude, hold on. Surrender's not my vocabulary, bro. You know, I'm, I'm a cop, cover military background. I am, surrender is not my vocabulary. He's like, no, man, you got to hit your knees. You got to give it up. The next morning, Tuesday, December 10th, he comes on over to my house. Eight o'clock in the morning, he's sitting at the front door, two cups of coffee and two Bibles. He comes in and I hit my knees. I gave it up. And that is when my life changed forever. I just gave it up and I felt like the weight of the world just come off my shoulders. I felt, I literally physically felt lighter. And that right there started my journey, my true journey of recovery. And I ended up going to another place called Sierra Tucson for my uh, mental health out in Arizona. I was sent out there through a connection, a really good friend of mine, really close friend. His name was Bill Mazur, right? Retired deputy chief from Atlantic City. He works for Acadia Health now. And his job is to put first responders into these treatment facilities. And him and I have become like best friends now. We talk at least once a week. And he's become a real inspiration for me, really like a mentor for me. So I went out there, did 30 days out there. I did a lot of EMDR training for the trauma. And I did something else called TMS therapy, which is called transcranial magnetic stimulation. So I put an MRI magnet up against your head and it pulsates magnetic waves across your brain, creating new neural pathways for your brains, for your brain waves to travel. And uh, that was a miracle. That is what really turned my life around. My depression started to slowly go away. I was happy. I was walking around the facility like I was floating on air. I was walking around with a smile on my face. I was just so happy. While I was out there, I started thinking to myself, like, you know what? I have been concentrating too much on work. I need to concentrate on stuff for Brad, stuff to make Brad happy. So I went to the therapist's office where I was thinking this. I heard this trickling waterfall in the background. And it sounded like a creek that was close to my house where I grew up, where I would go fishing for native brook trout with a fly rod. And I said to myself, man, I, was, I remember how much fun that was. I loved it. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to go take a fly fishing. So when I came home after those 30 days, I had to do my IOP. When I went to, you know, I was working out in the gym. I go to this, I go to this fly shop that's close to me and I buy my first fly rod. And I got hooked into fly fishing. And that is the most grounding exercise you could do because you have to be present. And thank God I got into that because um, right at the end of February, I called in to work. I get called in by the chief to go talk to him. And uh, here I am thinking I'm going to get fired. I got my gun on my badge. like, ready to, here you go, chief. Take it. I'm done. Instead, some, something totally opposite happened. Something I was not expecting. He comes in. I sit down across the table from him. He goes, Brad, this is what's going to happen. Tomorrow morning, you're going to report to the armor. You're going to be issued your new handgun. You're going to go to a range with the head firearm instructor. You're going to qualify. And then you're going back to work full duty. And I'm like, excuse me? He's like, yeah, you're going back to work full duty. You're good to go. And I was like, all right. And after wiping the tears away from my face, and you know, so I was so grateful, so grateful that God has given me another chance. And he goes to me, oh, and another thing, next Monday, 
you're going to be going down to South Jersey to go to this uh, master resiliency training. So you become a master resiliency trainer, right? Because I want you to start heading up this uh, resiliency program in our office and in the county. And I'm like, this is, this is it right here. This is my chance. This is my opportunity. So I go down there, go do that. I come back for one week at work and COVID hits. Everything gets shut down, right? No gyms, no in-person AA meetings, nothing. Our office gets closed down. We go from working one week on, two week off schedule. So I have two weeks off in the middle of COVID. I mean, this is a recipe for disaster for me because it could have been so easy for me to go pick up a drink and no one would have known about it because it would have been isolated. But instead, I go take my fly rod, take my waders, and I go fishing every day. Fly fishing saved my life during COVID. I think there was a period where I went fly fishing 65 days straight. I mean, it was, it was great. It was therapy for me. And this is when, like during COVID, when I really started helping out other cops, I started getting the phone calls from uh, Cop the Cop, which is a, I don't want to say a counseling service, but it's like almost like a hotline for cops who are in crisis, cops who are, who need help, cops who may need to go talk to someone, may need to go to rehab or whatever. But I started getting phone calls from these guys. Hey, Brad, uh, you got to go over to, such and such county and um, go to this address and you gotta go talk to this guy. He's going through it. All right. One thirty in the morning, I'm getting in my truck. I'm driving over there, picking this guy up, taking him to the hospital. I'm paying it forward. I'm getting these guys into the rehabs that need to get into. And these guys are listening to me because once I tell them my story, like, dude, you did, you did this exact same thing. You go, yeah. And so are you. If I could do it, you could do it. And it all goes back to that whole thing that you're talking about, that post where you have to check your ego at the door. Our ego kills us because we don't want to admit that we need help because we're supposed to be the ones that are helping everyone else. What happens when we need help? We have to have the strength, the intestinal fortitude to raise our hands and say, hey, you know what? I may need a little help here. Can you help me out? And I'm like, and I'm always there. Yeah, brother, come on. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to show you the way. You got to put in the work. I can't tell you how many times now I've gotten guys and girls who, who call me up and are like, Brad, I need help. And I said, you just did the most courageous thing you'll ever do in your life right there is admit to another cop that you need help. And I said, right there, that is the hardest thing you'll ever do. Everything else from this point on is going to be easy. It's going to be a walk in the park. And it's true. Through this resiliency program, every person that I have, every cop that I have helped out has returned to duty or working now, full duty and are flourishing. They're better than they've ever been. And it's all because they trust the process. And it's all because they're putting in the work. And I always tell them, I said, listen, everything you've got in your life, you've had to earn. Everything that's worth something in your life, you had to earn. That badge that you wear every single day, you had to earn that by going to 26 weeks of the police academy, right? That police academy sucked. It sucked getting up every morning doing PT. It sucked getting yelled at by the drill instructors. But you know what? You did it. And what was the, what was the goal at the end? What was the prize? that piece of cheap tin that you pin on your chest. What's the prize now? A lifetime of sobriety, a lifetime of happiness. Because you're not going to have to feel like this anymore. You will not have to know what it feels like to be drunk ever again. You won't feel those hangovers anymore in the morning. Because I can tell you what, when I go out with the guys from the SWAT team, or I remember when we went to Nashville a couple of years back, sober, and my chief goes to me, he's like, Brad, I am so jealous of you right now because you're, you're the only guy in this whole group that's feeling like a million bucks. I go, yep, 
you're right. I feel great. And they go, you all feel like stir fried shit, you know, and, but it's the truth. I feel like I can do productive things during the day now and I have to nurse a hangover. Yeah. Right? I don't have to be popping Advil. I don't have to be doing all this other crap. How are you doing now? I'm doing great. It was funny because I, I remember how everyone said that 2020 was like a shit show. Yeah. Right? It was everyone's worst year because of COVID and everything like that. I flourished because everyone was like not used to like living a life of chaos. I'm like, I was because that was my life for so many <laughs> years. So, right? I knew how to live in chaos. Like, let's not forget, like during this time in 2020, my chief puts me into major crimes where I'm investigating fatal accidents, arsons, and homicides, right? Mm-hmm. Puts me back on the SWAT team. I mean, I'm getting everything back in God's time when God feels I'm ready. And it was great. Yeah. It, it was fantastic. And then come February of 2021, I'm working out at the gym. And I end up tearing both of my biceps. So I'm out of work. I'm walking around, my arms immobilized, right? And that's when I started questioning everything. And I was like, you know what? God's doing this for a reason. There's all the reasoning behind this. So there always is. I was back for two months. I came back, I did the resiliency training. And I come to find out, being in the summer, right before Memorial Day weekend, that I have to get another surgery on my left arm because my, my bicep tendon was too stretched out. And they had to go in and put a cadaver tendon in there. Mm. So they go in, they put a, a cadaver hamstring tendon in my left arm, and I'm out. Six weeks later, my arm gets infected. I get this bad bacterial infection in my arm. My arm blows up like a balloon. I end up spending a week in the hospital. I almost lose my left arm. I end up getting another surgery. Okay. Mm-hmm. I then leave. Let's not forget, like during this time, also my wife drops the divorce papers on me in the hospital. So my whole world has just become like, I feel like the whole world's crumbling around me because, you know, the press was in the hospital. I got all this, you know, all this stuff going on. And like two days later after that, on a Sunday, my arm starts leaking all over the place. We got blood coming out of the incision. Throw a tourniquet on, wrap my arm up, drive myself to the hospital. Get stitched up there. And then like, I, I just had a mental breakdown. I was like, I've had enough. Yeah. I've had enough. I'm praying. I'm meditating. I'm doing everything, you know. And, you know, I've met a lot of people in the fellowship. and. Um, through my interactions with everyone in my sobriety. And I was just, I was blessed and very grateful to be put in contact with this gentleman by the name of Zach Harrison, who is a forward Delta operator. He owns this company called uh, Hades Consulting. Okay. And him and I become very close. He lives right around the corner from me. I'm not too far from where I live. And we always bounce stuff off each other. And I call him up and he hears it in my voice. He hears that I'm struggling. And his business partner, Joe, my name is Charlie Ross. He's also a part of his company. They made the decision. They're like, you know what? We got to get Brad back down to Warrior's Heart just to do a recharge. Mm-hmm. Go down there for five days, get reconnected, and get him back in the fight. And get a phone call the next day from, from Zach saying, hey, Brad, don't be mad at me with what I'm going to tell you because I know how you are. You won't accept this, but I'm making sure you're going to go. We're going to buy you a plane ticket, and you're going to go down there. We're going to pay for everything. Wow. And no one has ever done anything like that for me before. Yeah. You know, and I, I didn't know how to take it. And I was very grateful, very, you know, humbled about all this. And at the end of August, I go down there for five days, get reconnected, get grounded. And then when I get back, I get transferred to my, my new spot where I'm at the police academy now instructing. Yeah. And it's great because now God has been opening so many doors for me. There's another company, hopefully, that I may be uh, starting uh, to work with called Resilient Minds on the Front Lines. Where they go around and they teach resiliency to different police departments all around the country. And 
they're doing great work. It, it's right in, in line with my ideals and morals. And I love it. Get my fishing in, you know, you know, my therapy and spending time with my boys and spending time with people that care about me because that group of people that I belong to, those are my people. Those are the ones who get me and I get them. Yeah. And I know that those are the individuals that if I made a phone call to at two o'clock in the morning, they'll pick up the phone and they'll be there for me. That's awesome, man. You know, and I'm very grateful for that. Brad, you've been through a lot, my brother, but I'm a firm believer. We said this earlier that everything that we go through, good, bad, or otherwise, is for a reason. And when you have to go through as much as as you've gone through, that's God's Mm -hmm. way of testing you to see if you're going to be up to the task that he has set forth for you. And that's to help others Mm -hmm. that come behind you. And when we're going through those dark times, man, it seems like the world is just ending. But there's always that light at the end of the tunnel. And I congratulate you on your sobriety to this point and continue that. Please continue the work. Please continue doing what you're doing. The way I look at it, you can get through those dark times. Yeah. Right. It's easy. Flip down those knots and just, <laughs> just keep going. That's it. Yeah. You know, there's no other way. You know, you don't stop just because it's dark out. You stay the course and don't quit. Quitting is not an option. Yeah. Quitting is not an option. For sure. Guys, listen, this is not a regular episode. You guys know my usual format. I'm switching it up. Nothing I can add can top Brad's story here. And I think that you're going to get more value out of that story than anything that I could ask at this point. And Brad, if you can just do me a huge favor, man, if you can just share your social media so people can reach out and contact you if they want to ask you questions or follow up with you or anything. Yeah, my Instagram is uh, at God's Breacher. <laughs> you know, it's a real original uh, handle, but it's the way I look at it. God put me here to breach the doors of, you know, the stigma of uh, mental health and addiction. Yeah, so that's sure. the way I look at it. So that's my name, God's Breacher. For sure. Guys, I'm going to put a link to that down in the show notes. Please go over, follow Brad, check out what he has going on, reach out to him if you find yourself in one of those dark moments and you need somebody that maybe you can talk to, feel free to to reach out to him. I'm I'm here. Yeah, for sure. Guys, listen, again, this isn't a regular episode. I have nothing else to add after that. Just follow the podcast on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, and I will see you guys all on the next episode. Please stay safe. Appreciate you guys, and I'm out of here. Bye-bye.